All right, so did you hear about the orphan that robbed the bank? No. He just wanted to be wanted. <laughs> Hello, everybody, and welcome to Murder and Mystery in the South. I'm Justin Case. And I am Ella Blue. And we're here to tell you a little bit about all the creepy shit that happens down south. There's a lot of murder and mystery that goes on down here that people don't really know about. They think that we're just, you know, the, the sweet ones that southern hospitality but cross the wrong person it, it goes the wrong way and for those that wonder we do wear shoes we've we've entered <laughs> into that phase now i think um we actually get the grand Ole opry on the night that it's broadcast instead of on monday nights now <laughs> and we have electricity and indoor plumbing so come on down and visit Might can fix you up some cornbread and some sweet tea probably not though <laughs> especially if you visit unannounced It'll be the next case on this show. <laughs> we have definitely learned how to hide a body on here, huh? Once or twice. On July 9th, 1988, 20-year-olds Kenneth Griffith and Earl Smock went on an ATV ride with Kenneth's father-in-law, 47-year-old Richard Mason. Kenneth had told Earl how beautiful the area called Blue Hole was, and Richard volunteered to take them. The two younger men put on their flight suits, packed a cooler full of drinks, and Richard loaded a pistol in the ATV he had borrowed from a neighbor. They Why took were off. they wearing flight suits to ride four-wheelers? I will get to that in a minute. Okay. They took off at 6 p.m. that afternoon, not knowing it would be the last time they would be seen alive. Earl's got to die. Because <laughs> Earl. <laughs> Let me tell you about Kenneth first. Um, he grew up on Signal Mountain, which is a suburb outside of Chattanooga, Tennessee. And actually, it goes back to um, Civil War times because that's where they would sit to give the signals if, if they saw the Union coming. You know, the finger. <laughs> so anyway, um, it's located on Walden Ridge, and um, he met Paula Mason, his wife, in the 10th grade. Paula said they sat beside each other in math class and instantly fell in love. Being an only child, Richard had a hard time giving his daughter away, but he liked Kenneth. Even though he wasn't an outdoorsy, he wasn't as outdoorsy as Richard. He was learning. Paula and Kenneth made their home near Fort Walton, Florida at Elgin Air Force Base where Kenneth was stationed. He quickly became friends with Earl Smock, who coincidentally Is that where the is that where the flight suits yes. came from? So he quickly becomes friends with Earl Smock, who coincidentally Dealing grew up an quickly. hour north of Chattanooga. And Kenneth and Paula had told him many times how beautiful the area was. And since he had never been before, Earl decided to load his ATV and go with the Griffiths to Paula's family home. So Kenneth, the father-in-law, and his wife Martha made their home and lived on Signal Mountain for 13 years. They enjoyed the area and became good friends with their neighbors. So it was it was no surprise that Kenneth would borrow an ATV from a good friend and neighbor named Stanley Nixon. When the men didn't return that night, Paula became worried. Her mother Martha tried to convince her that everything would be okay. The boys were with Richard and that he definitely was outdoorsy. He knew what he was doing. She suggested they maybe ran out of gas or it just got foggy so they stayed to camp so they didn't get lost on the way back. When the men hadn't returned that Sunday morning, Martha finally called the police to report them missing. She also called friends and family to help them look. 
Stanley was able to follow their trail through a dirt road the locals called Helican Road. This basic this it's basically a riding trail. It doesn't even show up on Google Maps. He lost the trail at Vandergriff Road, which is a paved road. At the same time, police received another call from a ran- man at the same time police received another call from a man reporting that he pulled onto the side of the road to check his tires on Roberts Mill Road he spotted three ATVs down an embankment that was an illegal dumping site where the ATVs were found was east of the Mason's home the route to Blue Hole was north so at the time they didn't think anything yeah they didn't think anything of it why wouldn't they think anything of it because they found them east of the home, but the trail was It north. was right. It, it was at the same time, so they hadn't put two and two together yet. They hadn't um, been... Slow mountain cops. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so, um, Lee Griffith, Kenneth's brother, followed police to where the ATVs were found to try to see if, you know, one of them was his brother's. When he left the dump site, his truck died. He was able to get a ride with a man driving by. When he got into the truck, he noticed the bed of the truck was wet. He thought it was strange because there hadn't been any rain in several weeks. He brushed it off, though. He was more worried about his brother. Don't be suspicious. Don't be suspicious. (laughs) Right? So, Kenneth and Richard's ATVs were covered in blood, and the pistol that that, um, Kenneth had wrapped up was still in the compartment under the seat. Earl's ATV, however. That's a great place for it, by the way. Yeah. I Under mean, your ass. So hang on a minute. Let me get up and pop this uh-huh. in. Yeah, perfect. So um, Earl, Earl's ATV, though, he, it didn't have any blood on it. So it prompted the detectives to look into Earl a little closer. And they thought since he was an outsider, he may have had something to do with the murders. Paula told authorities, though, that he was a good guy and had never had any v- issues with him. The Air Force also said that they never had any issues with Earl. They even sent about 100 airmen to aid in the search. So Hamilton County Sheriff's Department set up a command center at an old school near Helican Road, which is where they lost track. Search crews scoured over areas in all directions. Once word got around of the search, calls started to come in with tips for the police. One call was from a neighbor, William Wiggins, saying that he had heard gunshots on the night of the 9th. Wiggins said that he heard five to seven shots fired in the direction of what locals called the Helican Gate. This area marks the trail to Blue Hole. Mildred Hines stated she saw a Jeep Scrambler with what looked like one to two ATVs in the back. Pamela O'Neill said that she heard ATVs riding on her property, then gunshots around 7 to 7.30. She and her husband decided to leave around 2 a.m. and saw a Jeep Scrambler near where the ATVs were found. Detective Sneed, Stanley Nixon, and a few others went to the gate to search. Immediately, Sneed saw what looked like fresh pellet marks on a tree. Looking further around the area, Nixon said that it looked like it was too manicured, as though someone had um, swept the area with a pine branch. And the team searching noticed two large areas of grass that had been trampled. Cleaned up the scene. Mm-hmm. One officer saw a shimmer of green. He stopped to try to see what it was, and an iridescent, iridescent green fly, <clears throat> an iridescent green fly, had landed on his arm. What is peculiar about this fly? They are attracted to decay and decomposition. Blowflies. Yes. 
The team started to look more closely. Sneed noticed drag marks from the road to a nearby tree. Here they found blood and what was later determined to be brain tissue. Mm. A cooler and a knife belonging to Kenneth was also found. Hamilton County Sheriff's Department called in the cadaver dogs to search the spot. The dogs found two large pools of blood on the side of the road and another pool of blood on the other side that had been covered with leaves and other debris. In one of the pools of blood, bone chips consistent with a human skull was also found. It was determined that the striation marks found on the skull, skull were consistent with a shotgun pellet. Um, another tip came in stating a woman was blocking the road around 8.30 in a blue Chevy Nova. She was parked in the middle of the road looking very nervous. Another tip said that there was a low-flying plane that was seen in the area. Could it be they stumbled onto a marijuana farm is what they were thinking. The police searched the four-mile area and found nothing. Then they thought maybe the woman was blocking the road for the ATVs to be dumped. So Detective Sneeve asked asked that all property owners come to the command center. Did he go back up? Okay. Detective Sneed asked that all property owners come to the command center. Asking questions of the owners, one in particular caught his attention. Frank Castile bought 130 acres a few months ago. He owns property where the Helican Gate is located. He also drives a Jeep Scrambler. Sneed asks Castile if he can take a look at his Jeep. Frank tells him, sure. Shit's lining up. It's parked just up the road at a friend's place. Sneed finds a logbook, quote-unquote, between the the seats. Sneed asked if Frank had a shotgun, and Frank allowed him to take it with him. Frank told detectives he and his wife Susie were camping on their property for their anniversary. They didn't hear anything the night of the murders. When asked about the logbook, he said that a police officer told him to keep records of who is trespassing so he can see if they are repeat offenders. Locals believed that the Helican Gate Road was public, and Frank strongly believed he owned it. Searching the area where Castile and his wife were camping, they found pieces of a burnt tarp. They were not able to take soil samples from his Jeep because it had been washed. They felt as though they didn't have much else on Castile. Nixon told them of another potential suspect. Nixon and Mason had been hunting and had happened to cross over onto Castile's property. The caretaker, Cecil Hickman, and his two sons came up to the men and told them they needed to leave, then fired his gun over the two men's heads. Police questioned Hickman and found out that he had a solid alibi. He was visiting family in Kentucky. On the 13th, police get a frantic call from neighboring Marion County. A woman named Portia McDowell was taking her usual walk around Big Fork Road when she started to smell something rancid. She got her husband to go to the illegal dumping site, and that is where he found three bodies covered in brush and barbed wire. Police identified the bodies as Kenneth, Earl, and Richard. Why the barbed wire? I think he was just grabbing anything he could to try to hide it, just throwing uh, shit on top of him. Gotcha. So Frank King, he was the Hamilton County Medical Examiner. He determined that Kenneth was the first to be shot. The bullet entered just above his left ear and exited out the right side. The trajectory was consistent with the shooter standing above him, most likely meaning Kenneth was still sitting on his ATV. (laughs) Kenneth also had scrapes along his chest consistent with being dragged across a rough area. 
It was a dirt road. That's pretty rough. Richard had been shot in the chest at close range with buckshot. The trajectory was also consistent with the shooter standing above him. Now, how did this medical examiner determine which one was shot first? Or is this just his best guess? This is just his best guess. It really didn't. I mean, in in what I could find on the medical examiner's notes and stuff, it didn't really say why he thought who was who as far as the first two. But he said with Earl, he thinks Earl was the last to be shot. It's believed that he got off the ATV and tried to make a run for it. He was shot once in the shoulder with buckshot. And King said this most likely knocked him on the ground where the shooter then stood over him and shot again. This time it was fired at such close range, the birdshot went through his heart and the wadding from the shell lodged in Earl's lower left shoulder. King also said it was possible the men were shot with three different guns. So, I don't, I mean, to me that seems like you would have at least two people if you've got three different guns. If you have three different guns. Yeah. Being shotguns without the shell casings, it's hard. And if they cleaned up the area, I'm sure they'd pick those up. So this kind of, this this case went cold after this. Because, you know, they had nothing really to to go on but um a year after the murders paula who was kenneth's wife she gets a call from unsolved mysteries and they wanted to do a segment to see if maybe it would help get any leads for them me too so in january of 1990 the episode aired and after the show police received a call from a woman claiming that she was the woman with the blue chevy nova She said that she and her husband were riding a dune buggy. Their engine had stalled on them, and they turned their car to be able to shine the lights to see how to pull it out. So that was the deal with the woman walking the road. So you think she was nervous because she was sideways in the road? I guess. Who knows? Of course, you know, people see what they want to see, too. So I I would assume somebody might see it and say, Oh, well, she looks suspicious, so she looked like she was nervous. Well, that's true. You always look suspicious. (laughs) I am suspicious. So the case went cold until 1996. And police get an anonymous call about a lady named Marie Hill. When they went to her house, she told them she had received anonymous letters and newspaper clippings about the murder. Also saying they had witnessed Castile killing Mason Griffith and Smock. Now, why were letters sent to Hill? Who is this Marie Hill? Mm-hmm. She was Castile's mistress. Ah. A third letter sent to the neighbors asking if they knew that she was, um, quote unquote, dating a murderer. Good information if yeah. you're hooking up with somebody. So police took the, the letters and, and ran a D- DNA analysis on them, and um, they were written by Frank's wife. So Hill, you know, she's kind of a little freaked out about it wondering okay is that really true am i dating somebody that's a murderer so she agrees to um, go along with the police and tape conversations and so Susie, frank's wife goes to hill's house to confront frank and marie all right she mentions the murder several times but frank never confesses that tape was five hours long but it did help police in securing a search warrant for frank's house no confession but they were able to get a search warrant. Probably. Yeah. 44 items were seized, including those letters to Marie and another shotgun and ammo. The tape also led to Frank's arrest. 
and he was formally charged on April 15, 1997. So now comes the trial. The DA said the shootings were the final chapter in a series of confrontations with trespassers. Multiple witnesses testified to hearing six to seven shots from the direction of the gate on Helican Road. The testimony of the witness seeing the Jeep at the ATV dump site was brought up, and it was also said they noticed a tarp over the back of the bed. Remember the burnt tarp in the fire pit? Yep. Ballistics didn't match the guns collected from Castile, but it is hard to match ballistics to pellets. Yeah, you don't have ballistics with pellets. And, you know, he owns 130 acres. That's 130 different places to hide a gun. Shotguns are also cheap. Mm-hmm. Investigators testified they believed the ATVs were moved one at a time in the bed of the Jeep. I think he had to have help, though. Depending, you know, depending on what type of ATV, four-wheeler, whatever you want to call it, what you get, it's 400 to 700 pounds. One person cannot lift that alone. Help or ramp. Well, did it say anything about ramps, though? They found nothing like that. John Lyons said, Lyons, L-I-N-E-S, not Lyons. I said it right, Lyons. Potato, potato. (laughs) John Lyons said he saw a woman hosing what looked like blood out of the bed of a Jeep at a local car wash on July 10th. John asked the woman if if it was blood, and she said yes, from a pig she took to the slaughterhouse. He thought this was very sus because slaughterhouses aren't open on Sundays. He wrote the license plate number down, and a few days later, he saw Frank driving it. <clears throat> Eighteen witnesses testified about encounters with Frank on their way to the Blue Hole. Each one said he had point a gun at them, telling them to leave. The defense moved to exclude the evidence of the prior confrontations, but the judge said, nope, denied. The defense also argued that the state's case was entirely circumstantial. Castile testified he and his wife were only there camping, on the 9th of July, 1988. Oh. They had gone down to the Blue Hole to swim and didn't return to their campsite until after 10 and went right to sleep. They didn't hear anything. The jury took only 45 minutes to return a guilty verdict. However, the verdict was overturned by the Criminal Court of Appeals and a new trial was ordered in 2002. The conviction was upheld on May 7, 2003, and Frank Castile was sentenced to life in prison. Castile died on May 31, 2019, at 71 years of age. He was eligible for parole in 2025. Frank's son, Trevor, wrote a book saying he was innocent. He said it was a failure of justice for the families of the victims, and justice heaped on Frank Castile in a 20-year fight for his freedom. I don't care. He had to have had somebody else helping him. With everything that was going on, He it, there had to have been somebody else, but nobody else was ever charged. Well, apparently there was if there was a woman washing out the truck. Yep. There was also a woman sending letters to the mistress. Well, DNA showed that it was it was the wife. Mm-hmm. So, and I mean, if she's going to call him a murderer, she had to have known what was going on. True. Well, that doesn't mean she had any hand in the murders, but she apparently helped with the cleanup. Yeah. By what that says. So, yeah, that was, this is the very first murder in the area that I remember being young and and really seeing it on TV, so that's the one I wanted to start with. Just remember, if you kill somebody, don't cheat on your wife. Exactly. Turn you in. Exactly. 
Hail hath no fury. <laughs> you don't cheat on me, that's fine. I'm going to tell everybody who you murdered. That's right. All right, so what are your final thoughts on this particular case? Well, I think Frank Castile, when he bought the land, he thought that it was just going to be this, this property that was just going to be only his. And probably something got misconstrued along the way, and he thought that the, the road going to Blue Hole was part of his property and that he could keep people off of it. And when he didn't, his anger just got worse. And him being there with his wife that night, there's no way she didn't know what was going on. No way. But I think he probably had had enough and being there that night and the three guys showing up just set him off and and he decided to take care of it the only way he figured was going to work for him. I'd agree with that. But he had to have had help. There's no way. He had to have had help. Well, I think that's pretty obvious. I also think it's pretty obvious why they didn't charge her, though. She was the one sending the warnings. Really, in, in the end, she was the one that brought it all to light. Mm-hmm. What do you think? I would agree with your assessment. Based on the information that we have, I'd say that was probably exactly what happened. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Um, we will be uploading twice a week, Mondays and Thursdays. So we'll be bringing you more crazy stuff from the South. Stay weird. Bye, y'all.